Matthew chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 39 today, although most of our time will be spent on part of it. The rest of it is going to kind of just provide context for us as we look at it here a little bit this morning. And the reason for that is some of these things we've recently covered. Because notice in verse 21 of chapter 15 it says, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on a mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered. When they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were four thousand men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan. To be honest, looking into this passage as I was getting ready for this week, I was not strongly encouraged at first. After thinking about it for some time, I became very encouraged and, ex- and actually excited about it. The reason I was not very encouraged at the beginning is we've now spent several weeks looking at different miracles that Christ performed. And we've emphasized emphasized at each time that these are things that showed who he was. These were signs. Now, as we look through this, we've seen him do everything. We've seen him raise the dead. We've seen him make lame people walk, blind people see. We've seen him walk on water now, calm storms, cast out demons. We've seen him do all kinds of amazing things. But then in between miracles, you also have other passages that mention a whole bunch of more miracles, but not in a lot of detail, like the one we just read in this passage here. Uh, For example, let's look at the end of chapter 14. When we got to the end of chapter 14 and we were learning about Jesus walking on water, the last part of chapter 14 says this, but we didn't focus on it a whole lot. It says that when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. All the miracles that we've been learning about specifically that Jesus did, that he tells the whole story of, there were so many more miracles that were happening alongside of that that we don't get the whole story. That's what he tells us at the end of chapter 14. He goes up to that region, and it doesn't really tell us anything other than the fact that they let everybody in the whole region know, and they brought everybody who was sick out there to be healed. Now let's look at the end of chapter 15. When we're coming up close to the end, verse 29 says, Jesus went from there. 
And he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. When You've got to think about what we've seen all the way up to this point. Jesus has, in the book of Matthew... He's been talking about miracle after miracle and doing a whole bunch of miracles over here and a whole bunch of miracles over here. And he's been going into all the towns and villages because he wants to get to all the different towns and villages before the end of his ministry. And he's also sent his disciples. He sent, gave them the ability to cast out demons and to heal people. And he sent them into all these towns and villages on their mission trip that they got to go on. Now, if you stop and think about this, there is so much here that it is impossible for it to not be true. Think through this with me. There is so much information covered, so many miracles done in so many places, that it is impossible for it to not be true. Sometimes the truth can be seen plainly in the situation itself. I remember when we first moved here, there was a young man in the community that, that my son Tim got to know, and they were just going into seventh grade. And one day we're out in the yard, and here comes this new friend of Tim's, comes riding up on his bike into our yard, and he's all excited, and he starts to tell us he just saw a bear down in Lofgren Park on the trail that you go through down there. Well, we get bears around here. That's not unbelievable. Uh, I, from what I understand, before we lived in our house, there was a bear in our oak tree one time. I remember... A couple of years ago, there was one across the street from the school down there in a tree in that yard. And so we get that once in a while. And so I thought, well, maybe we should let some authorities know. But as the kid continued to tell me the story, I said, wow, what? that must have been a little scary, huh? And he says, yeah, he was riding his bike down through that trail. And he came upon this bear. And he said, this bear came after me. And I said, well, how did you get away? He said, I took my bike and I turned it around and I started heading the other way. I said, man, bears are pretty fast. He said, yeah, but that bear ran into a tree. <laughs> And I said, well, I don't think we need to notify the authorities. <laughs> if that bear can't even catch you without running into a tree, he's pretty safe. The truth or lack of it can be seen within the story itself. When we look at the Gospels, you got four different writers telling about all these miraculous events, these things that Jesus did. If they want to tell a story and it's not true, they blew it. They overdid it. Because they've covered all of Israel... John talks about him going up into Samaria, where the woman of the well is, where Jesus comes across her. They've covered the area of Galilee, big cities like Capernaum. And all of the whole land has been covered by the disciples and Jesus going all over the place, performing miracles and teaching in every city throughout the land. In other words, there's not a community that isn't aware of the miracles. So, if Matthew goes to write a book telling about all these miracles that happened in Capernaum and, and in Genesaret and, and down in Jerusalem and, and in Tyre and Sidon and in these different regions. Some of them are regions, some of them are, are cities, but he names them all. If Matthew goes to write a book that says Jesus did all these things in Capernaum and they read the book in Capernaum, they're going to say, that didn't happen. I don't remember that. Do you remember that? That didn't happen. And you see, that's the point. Is Matthew has recorded so many miracles happening in so many different places, that if this is not true, this book would have been discarded as a lie. This book would have faded into oblivion. It would not be around for us to read today because everybody would have ignored it because they knew that it wasn't the truth. But why has Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, why have those 
come down to us down through the ages, 2,000 years, and are, are part of our Bible today and are read within our Bible today is because at the time that he wrote it, all the people that saw the miracles, most of them are all still alive and they, they, they remembered those things happening and they heard about those things happening. Great crowds of people saw those things happening. And so when Matthew writes to the Jewish people and he's telling them about all these miraculous things that Jesus did, they remember them. It was the truth. These things were not done in a corner. They were not done in secret. They were done in huge crowds and out for everybody to see. They were in population centers. And when they weren't in a population center, the population came out to it. And so we had thousands of people seeing these miracles. Just picture it happening in your hometown. Picture Jesus coming through and doing all these miracles in our hometown. Twenty years later, a book comes out. When you read that book, you know what you're going to see? You're going to read through some of those stories and some of you are going to say, you know what, That's my, that was my uncle that got healed right there. Hey, I, I remember that happening. And some that are too young to remember it happening are going to say, you know what, my mom and dad told me about that. That would have been amazing to see that. You see, it would have all been substantiated because it's the truth. Now picture the opposite happening. Picture that none of that ever happened and all of a sudden somebody comes through town or writes a book about our town and they say, you know what, in Little Fork one day this guy showed up and he did these amazing miracles. He, he made this, the lame walk and there was a blind guy and he made him to see. If it wasn't true, you know what you'd be doing? You'd be saying, what blind guy? I don't remember a blind guy. I don't remember anybody getting healed. Do you remember anybody getting healed? I've never heard of that. And you could check with people. Nobody's ever heard of it. So what would happen to that book? Gone. Nobody's interested. Why? Because it's not the truth. The fact that Matthew told us so many miracles in so many places confirms the truth of the Word of God. In John chapter 21, verse 25, he said, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Uh, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the book's it would be written, but he went on to say, but I've written down these so that you could see and in seeing you would believe. So he said, I've tried to record enough of it so that you could get an idea what Christ did and believe in him. But there was so much more that was done than what we've told. As we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the Apostle Paul is teaching about the resurrection, he goes on to tell him that Jesus, after he rose again from the dead, he was seen by Peter, he was seen by the twelve, he was seen by different witnesses, and then he says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I love that because what is he saying? He's saying, look, Jesus died on the cross, he rose again from the dead, and he appeared to 500 people, 500 people in one setting, saw him alive again after he was dead. And then the next part is the part I love. Most of them are still alive. In other words, he's saying, you know this. There's over 500 people that saw this that will tell you about it. You can ask them. You don't have to take my word for it. You see, a lot of times we read these things in our own context and we're 2,000 years later, but these were being written in the present day that these things happened. And so the witnesses were still alive. The memories were still being passed around verbally. They weren't even all written down yet. But the people knew that they were true because they happened in their communities. As we look at the Apostle Paul, when he stands on trial later in his ministry, he's on trial before Agrippa and another guy named uh, Governor or whatever named Festus was there. It says, as he was saying these things in his defense, so he's, Paul's giving his defense as he's on trial, but you know what the Apostle does every time he gets to give his defense? He gives them the Gospel. And so he's talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says, as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you 
out of your mind. So Festus challenges Paul and he says, Paul, you're crazy. You've, you, you're, and he recognizes who he is. Paul was a very learned individual. And so he says, Paul, you, you, your great amount of learning has driven you crazy. But the Apostle Paul says, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. You see, that's why the Bible has so much... Well, it has the validity and it has the truth behind it because it is the Word of God. How do we know the Word of God? It cannot be false. It's too locked into history in a historical context. Go back to our story about Little Fork. If somebody wrote a book about Little Fork and tried to persuade everybody that that was, book was true and those things didn't really happen, would they gain a following here? Little Fork would be the hardest place to get somebody to believe that, would it not? But look at what happened with the early church. Where did Jesus Christ rise again from the dead? Wasn't it? It was in Jerusalem. And just a short time after that, at the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he preaches to the people in the crowds and he talks about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You guys hung the Son of God on the cross. You killed Him. But He rose again from the dead. Now, if that didn't really happen, this would be the hardest place to convince somebody that that's true. What do you mean? There's no empty grave. There's no. But what happened right there in Jerusalem? Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Peter preached that message, said Jesus died and rose again from the dead right here. And in Jerusalem, 3,000 people believed after that one message. And then as we continue to read along, a few verses later, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That means day by day. Every day, more and more people were believing in coming to Christ because they knew that He rose again from the dead because the empty tomb is still empty. And it was guarded by soldiers. We go on from there. We hit a couple chapters later. And the apostles are continuing to preach of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in Acts chapter 4, and verse 4, it says, But many of those who had heard the word believed in the number of men came to about 5,000. So now we add another 5,000. So in Jerusalem, where if these things were not true, it would be the hardest place on earth to convince people that it was true. People are believing by the thousands. In fact, we get another chapter later and it says, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. More than ever, people were believing. Right there in Jerusalem. Why? Because it happened. They were there for it. Some of them were part of those 500 people that saw him risen again from the dead. And other people were related to the 500 people that saw him risen from the dead. Other people were just friends, but they knew them, the people that were telling the truth to be honest people. And so how could it not, how could it not have happened if this person who I know to be honest in every other way is telling us that he rose again from the dead and that he saw him, not just that he believes it from somebody else, but he saw him arisen again from the dead. You see, that is the point. I remember, I don't remember the guy's name, but I remember one historian went to the Bible to prove that it was false, went to the book of Acts, and he said the reason he went to the book of Acts was because the Bible gave so much information, so many names, places, miraculous things happening. There's so much information there that they have to have made mistakes and he'd be able to find the mistakes and prove that it did not happen. But exactly the opposite happened. This guy became a believer because he found that there were so many names and places and, and events that were described within the book that this book would have never survived if it was not true. 
With that in mind, I'd like to focus down onto that one story that we're learning about, and this is about the Canaanite woman. In the term, the Canaanite woman, it would refer to her, she's basically a, a pagan individual from that area, somebody that's worshiping false gods. In fact, it's kind of interesting because there, there was a temple to a god of healing, a pagan god of healing, about three miles from where she was. And, uh, and so it's interesting that she didn't go to that temple. Maybe she'd already been to that temple to seek healing and it didn't work. Maybe that was the case. I don't know. But she comes to Jesus for healing in dealing with her daughters being tormented by the demons. So as we look at this, it's kind of an amazing statement that Jesus makes because he leads her through a process here and we're going to talk about that briefly. But he makes a statement about the greatness of her faith. He says to her in verse 28, O woman, great is your faith. That's kind of rare. It is also kind of interesting that it, in the Gospel of Matthew, this is the second time that we've seen Jesus tell anybody that their faith was great. And both times it was to Gentiles. Let's take a look at that this morning, shall we? What is it that makes this great faith? Most of the time as we look at Jesus and his relationship with the disciples, you don't really see him telling them how great their faith is. He usually says to them, oh, you of little faith. But this woman, he commends her for her faith. He tells her she has great faith. And I'd like to learn from that and make my faith greater as well. So let's look at some of the principles or some of the elements that we see within her faith. We'll see that great faith is, first of all, dependence on the mercy of God. It says a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Have mercy on me. So she came completely dependent upon the mercy of God. You know what I find is that when something negative happens in, in my life, or in, I notice it's not just with me, but other lives, we often go to what we deserve. Do you not find that to be true? How many times do you or somebody else that you know has something negative happen in their life and they say, I don't deserve this. Or it might be something happened in somebody else's life. They don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? Why would God allow this to happen? Well, that's not a good place to go. Um, because if we're going to start tallying up the things that we deserve, then we're going to have to come to grips with reality. And we look at the reality in the Bible is, is that what do we all deserve? We all deserve the wrath of God is what we deserve. The Bible's made that very clear. We don't deserve anything from the grace or the mercy of God. That's just the goodness of God's nature that bestows that upon us. But we deserve to be under God's wrath. So anytime we start going to what we deserve, that's really not a good place to go. Because we've probably got a pretty inflated opinion of ourselves or whoever it's happening to. And the fact of the matter is, if we deserve anything, it's hell itself. And so we probably shouldn't go to the I deserve category. You know what, with that in mind, I don't know about you, but I don't want to go to that category. (laughs) I don't want what I deserve. But she doesn't come saying, I don't deserve this. She doesn't come saying that about her daughter. My daughter doesn't deserve this. Now, I don't know what this lady's theological understanding of the nature of man is. And the point is, she doesn't come basing anything on what she deserves. My daughter doesn't deserve this. She's such a good girl. You should do this for her. All she does is she comes before Jesus and she says, have mercy on me. I'm not claiming to deserve anything. I'm not claiming that that it it should be your problem. It's my problem. But I need some help and I need it now. Uh, She just rests on the mercy of Christ. She's not recognizing, stating that he has any obligation toward her or any duty toward her, but she just wants his mercy in her life. In fact, Jesus is going to push her on that a little bit, which is where we're going to see the next character trait in her life, which is, which is humility. In fact, humble before God is, these two things kind of go together. 
Because because of her humility before God that she understood that she was in need of His mercy. And so as we consider this, anytime we need anything from God, it's, it's because of His mercy that He's going to give it. It's not because of any achievement on our part or any, or any greatness of character or standing. It's because God is a merciful God. Well, she was also humble. She comes and she says, Lord, and I don't know that that was necessarily her recognizing his deity. Uh, it might have been just a very respectful term because it was that. But she does call him son of David, which was a messianic term. And for her being a Gentile person, that, that's substantial, I think. And so she's looking at him being the Messiah, and she says, have mercy, have mercy on me. Jesus kind of puts her through this little test, if you want to call it that. He says he answered her, not a word. She's coming urgently because her daughter's going through something. He says Jesus does not answer her. He just ignores her. And obviously she continues, but she's not getting a word out of Jesus. And so she turns, next best thing, I guess, to the disciples. Because next thing you know, we see the disciples coming up to Jesus and they begging Him. And it doesn't seem very nice, but they're begging Him either. They're not begging Him to heal this gal's daughter or to fix this problem. They're not even asking Him, why aren't you... Why aren't you acting here? You know what they say to him? Would you get rid of her? Very little things make a man more nervous than a crying woman. And that's what's happening right here. She's crying. It's loud. They're feeling on the spot in front of other people. They're uncomfortable. They're like, Jesus, get rid of her, would you? And she gets a hearing again. And this time, what does Jesus answer? The first time he ignores it. Which if we didn't know who Jesus is, we didn't know how loving He is, we would almost think He was just being mean. But He's not. Then He tells her it's not right to give the food that's meant for the children to the dogs. Now, He lightens it a little bit. Jewish people often criticize Gentile people with the word dogs. would use the word dogs to refer to them. And the dogs that they were referring to were wild dogs that were in the area, scavengers. And so it was quite the, quite the slam. Jesus uses a little different word here. This, this, word is a, this word for dog is a word that was more of a domesticated pet. And I think you can see that in the, the lady's answer too because she said, you know what, you don't take the children's food and give it to the dogs. But even the dogs get it, eat what falls from the table. Which if you have a little guy like Justice or Malachi, that's quite a bit the dog will get. So you have fun <laughs> throwing it. Her humility really shows forth because Jesus just basically referred to her as outside of the nation of Israel, which she is, but as a dog that's not fit for what he's doing. Now, there is some importance to this because Jesus' ministry is a fulfillment of the promise that was given back to Abraham. But even the promise to Abraham said that he would be a blessing to the whole world. So that would end up going out to the Gentiles as well. But Jesus' ministry is a fulfillment of the covenant that was made with Abraham, the covenant that was made with Moses and Israel through the giving of the law, and the covenant that was made through David. So it's a fulfillment of this, all these covenants through the nations of Israel's history. So it is important. Jesus' ministry at this time is just to the nation of Israel. Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6 says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans. Samaritans were kind of half Jew, half Gentile. Uh, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus' whole ministry was to the nation of Israel. It wasn't always going to be that way. He came to present Himself as the Messiah of Israel. Through their rejection of Him, He would turn and go to the Gentiles. 
We're going to see that when we get to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is going to tell them a story about a king whose son is going to get married and he goes out and invites all of his friends to the wedding. But nobody comes. And so finally, since they all rejected him and nobody came to that, he says, Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Now what Jesus is teaching at that time is that Israel was the, all those people that were invited to the wedding of the son. Just as the king was having a marriage for his son, God was having a marriage for his son, and that the, the, the children of Israel would be brought to the Messiah. And he says, I invited you, and none of you accepted it. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go out and invite everybody else. And so it's referring to the Gentiles. In the Great Commission, in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said all authority was given to him in heaven and earth. And he tells the disciples at this point, now Israel's rejected him as the Messiah. They've crucified him. He's risen again from the dead. And Jesus says at this point, he tells them to go out into all nations, to go make disciples of all nations. While Jesus was here with them, he sent them only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, go everywhere. Go invite everybody. So in other words, Jesus was coming. His ministry was coming to the Gentiles, but not yet. Right now he was focused on Israel. He was going only to the lost sheep of Israel and presenting himself as their Messiah. But you know what? This lady in her humility says, I recognize that. But even the dogs get crumbs from the table. And Jesus said, your faith is great. Now was Jesus being mean to her by ignoring her? Was he being mean to her by the the whole story about the dogs? No. He was drawing her to this point. He knew what was in her. Just like the Bible says, he knows what was in all men. But he was leading her to this point. She had great faith. Why? One, because she was dependent on the mercy of God. She wasn't, it wasn't about what she deserved or owned. She just, she just needed Christ. Great faith also is humble before God. But also, it is persistent in its pursuit. But it doesn't give up. It hangs on. Think of Jacob when I think of this kind of uh, idea. One night, God comes to Jacob and gets in a wrestling match with Jacob. And God, even at one point, hurts Jacob to make him let go. He wounds his leg. God, at one point in the wrestling match, tells Jacob, let go of me. And Jacob says, no, <laughs> not lest you bless me. That's a good picture of faith. You know, later, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is going to tell a story of a persistent widow that's going to come before a judge, and the judge doesn't fear God or man, and he doesn't want to hear the widow, but the widow just keeps coming and just keeps coming and just keeps coming. At the end, Jesus says, you know what? Won't that unjust judge just get tired of hearing her come and give her what she wants? And he used that as an illustration of our relationship with God. I think it, I think it with my grandchildren. My, some of my grandsons are pretty persistent when they want a cup of juice. And there's sometimes when I am filling the cup and they will ask you for it again. Ryder recently, we had him for a little while. And there's a couple of times when I told Ryder, you can see I'm getting it. If you ask me one more time, Grandpa's drinking it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? That persistence, that's what God wants from us. He wants us hanging on Him. He wants us persistent before Him, trusting Him. These grandkids, why do they come to you? You know who they go to first? They go to Grandma. Why? Because they know they're going to get it from Grandma. That's why. They trust her. They'll ask her ten times for it before they get it to, she gets it to them, but they know. They know. They're trusting. This is coming. That's what God wants from us. He wants that persistence. You know, Hebrews identifies faith that way. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Jacob knew that if he hung on to God, God would bless him. He wouldn't let go until God did. 
You know, the same is true with you and the same is true with me. If you pursue God and you hang on to Him, He will bless you. Now, I'm not, I'm not preaching the health and wealth gospel about, you know, you're going to be driving fancy cars and living, but God will bless you with the things that really matter in your life. And a lot of that blessing is for after this life also. But that's what Hebrews is pointing out. In fact, he's about to give a whole bunch of examples of it in Hebrews chapter 11. But Hebrews is pointing out, without faith you cannot please God. What is faith? Faith is hanging on to God till He blesses you. It's about knowing that He exists and that He rewards. You know, that's exactly what Jesus was teaching us back in Matthew chapter 7 when He said, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be asking, seeking, knocking. That's what our relationship with God is like. So as we look at this great faith that was found in this woman, we see that great faith is, first of all, dependent on the mercy of God. It's not about what we deserve. It's about what what we need from Him. It's depending on His mercy, His goodness, not trusting in ourselves or any strength of character or position or anything on our part. Great faith is humble before God and recognizes who we are and who He is. And great faith is also persistent in our pursuit of God. Let's hang on until He blesses us, shall we?